We're continuing in our study through the Gospel of Luke today. We're in Luke chapter 12. And we'll begin with a section looking at verse 35. As we consider this, we're in the midst of some very practical exhortations given by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has spoken on the subject of the fear of men and not fearing men who can destroy the body but fearing God who has power to cast both body and soul into hell. He has spoken about covetousness and that our lives don't consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. He has talked about anxiety and not being anxious for our food and our clothing but realizing that God loves us and that He will provide and that we are to seek His kingdom. We're to lay up treasures in heaven. We're to build up those treasures which can't be destroyed by giving things away on this earth and showing that our hearts are not tied to our purse strings here in this life. And today we look at a parable commonly called the parable of the expectant servant. And we see, and this from the Bible exposition commentary, we will see Jesus shift emphasis from being worried about the present to being watchful about the future. The themes in Luke 12 all go together. For one of the best ways to conquer hypocrisy, covetousness, and worry is to look for the Lord's return. When you are living in the future tense, it is difficult for the things of the world to ensnare you. In this section, Jesus explained how we can be ready for His return. Beginning with verse 35 of Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. And you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The theme for the next two messages is be ready. And in this message, we are exhorted to be watching. And then in the next text, which is commonly called the parable of the faithful steward, beginning in verse 41, we will be exhorted to be doing. To be watching and to be doing. And thus be ready for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's consider the text then this morning, beginning with verse 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. What's he talking about when he says, let your waist be girded? In those days, 
both men and women wore long robes. The men wore long flowing robes and those robes they would tie up with a belt. And that was girding themselves when they would put a belt around their robe and tie it up so that it wouldn't get in the way when they had work to do or when they had places to go. So, as part of that outer, outer garment, girding up the waist then, here in this text, indicates not letting anything in this life hinder us from being ready for the Master's coming. But it means being prepared. Then it speaks about lamps and your lamps burning. Lamps were the primary source of light in their homes. And so again, this is an exhortation to be ready for the coming of the Master. And this parable is speaking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's saying here, that make sure and be watching and have things lined up and in order to be ready when he comes and when he arrives. You know, you can kind of picture it here. The master has gone to the wedding. It's a great day. And the servants are preparing because if there is any time when everything needs to be just right and they need to be prepared to serve their master, it is when he returns from the wedding with his bride. And so they make sure, the good servants, make sure that there is nothing hindering them from serving the master well. Weddings were often held at night in the Jewish culture. And so the good servants would make sure that their lamps were lit and burning. Not that when the knock came on the door from the master and he came into his own home, that they had to scramble around to get the lights turned on for him. So, the exhortation to us is to be prepared and have things in order and ready for the return of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has promised us that he will return. Be awake, be watching, be ready to go when Jesus comes back. Then in verse 36, he says, You yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down and will come and serve him. Think about that for a moment. First of all, it was unheard of for a master to wait on and serve a servant in that culture. Absolutely unheard of. That was not done. But think about what this parable is speaking of. It's speaking of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who are the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? You are. If you are His, I am. His servant. Is that something that it seems almost blasphemous to you to consider? That the Lord Jesus Christ on His return will serve us? But that's the glory of it. 
That is what's being spoken of here. That when Jesus comes, in all of His glory, in His final return, if He finds us ready and watching, if we are in Christ, that He will serve us. And we will be glorified with Him. Think about this for just a moment. Do we deserve to have Christ serve us? Can any one of us say that we deserve to have the Lord Jesus Christ in any way, shape, or form serve or minister unto us? Think about this as well. Have you ever done an act of super irrigation, I believe it would be called in some theological terminology. Have you ever gone above and beyond your duty and ever done anything for the Lord Jesus Christ that that was more than your duty to do unto Him? Can we go above and beyond the call of duty as Christians? Is that even possible? What would that mean if we could? It would mean that we go beyond the very point where we owe Christ for our salvation and we now have reached the point where we have fully repaid that, gone completely beyond that, and have now done something that is worthy of our own merit. That cannot be. The most righteous man that has ever walked the face of the earth, the most righteous woman that has ever lived, has never done a single action above and beyond their duty. Turn over to Luke 17, verse 7. Beginning with verse 7. Jesus says, Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come in at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you were commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Think about that. No matter how much we do, we are yet to proclaim, I am an unprofitable servant. I have only done that which was my duty. And think about this picture. What is Jesus saying here? He says, Which of you having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, Come on, sit down, eat, and I'm going to serve you. But yet Jesus tells us in this parable that he will serve us as our master. Our master will serve and minister unto us. We who are such unprofitable servants. Glory, glory, glory. Oh, what glory to have such a Savior. 
who has demonstrated such humility? And has he not already given us the perfect example of humble servitude when he took up the basin and the towel? There were his disciples, that unruly mob, those men that he had to rebuke so many times. And there in John chapter 13, it's recorded that he took off his outer robe. He took a, a basin of water. He took a towel. And he stooped down and performed the act of a servant, of a slave. And he washed their feet. Symbolizing to them the ultimate ministry which he would accomplish on their behalf when he would die upon the cross so that they could be cleansed from their sins. <laughs> you remember Peter? Peter said, Lord, no. And Jesus said, if you do not allow me to do this, you have no part with me. And Peter's like, well, wash my feet and my head. Wash everything, Lord. <laughs> but think about that humility. The Lord of the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ, humbling Himself to serve and minister unto us and to lay down His life for us. And He promises when He returns that He will minister to us in person at His coming if we are found watching and ready for His return. What a glorious Savior. What a glorious Savior. Who did Jesus said would say would be the greatest in the kingdom? The one that was the servant of all. There he is, first of all. The greatest. What greater act of servitude could there be than his humbling himself to wash his disciples' feet and dying on their behalf? One who was God of very God and who had angels and multitudes of heavenly beings created for the sole purpose of bowing at His feet and praising Him and honoring Him. But then Jesus tells us that the path to greatness is to walk where He has walked. We are to live as He lived to walk as He walked in the sense of He is our example of righteousness and we are to follow His pattern. So should we not be servants to one another? And think of this for a moment. Husbands, I appeal to you right now. Is the Lord Jesus Christ in authority over His church and His servants? Yes, He is. He is the head of his household, the church. How does he serve the church? He washed their feet. He died for their sins. And when he returns, he will minister unto us and serve us. What does it tell us in Ephesians 5? That we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. Is that correct? Are we the spiritual head and authority in our homes? Yes, we are. Wives are to submit 
to their own husbands. But how do we minister in our homes? How do we lead in our homes? We do it by service. We do it by sacrifice. Yes, when it comes down to it, we have the final authority and the final say. That is the role of authority that God has given us. But if we are to follow the example of Christ, we do not do so by lording it over our wives. We do not do so by always laying down orders and commands and bullying them and threatening them. We do so by stooping down and washing their feet. By laying our lives down to minister and serve to them. And by ministering and serving them throughout our entire lives. That is the role of a godly husband and what God requires of us. Verse 38 of Luke 12. Speaking of the Master, and if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. These were watches late into the night, nine to midnight, midnight to three o'clock, the time when many people are asleep, especially in that culture. They didn't do many graveyard shifts back then. The exhortation here is, blessed are those who don't spiritually sleep, but are constantly vigilant, watching for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's been almost 2,000 years since Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, when the Lord Jesus Christ was taken up from the disciples and they watched him vanish in a cloud. And as they stand there gawking into the sky, angels appear to them and say, Why do you stand looking upward? He will come back in like manner. It's been almost 2,000 years since that has happened. We're laid into the watches of the night. What is the exhortation for us? Don't sleep. Be watching. He could come. Don't think that because it's been 2,000 years that it does not mean that the Lord Jesus Christ could not come back today. Be ready. And always watchful. We see here then another picture given in this text in verses 39 and 40. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying that like a thief who comes into a house, so will his return be. You know the term a thief in the night? Biblical terminology. That's the way Christ will return. 
And the admonition is, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's saying if somebody has a house and he knows when a thief is going to show up, do you think he's not going to be waiting there perhaps with the authorities? What's the picture? Somebody is vigilant when they know what time the thief is coming. But what Jesus is saying is, be ready, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. What does that mean? What if you knew that a thief was going to break into your house, but you had no idea when it was going to happen? Do you think you're always going to be on the alert? You're always going to be ready? That's the picture the Lord Jesus is giving. Now, obviously, when it says a thief, it's not saying the Lord Jesus Christ is coming sinfully to rob or to steal, but he's simply using a picture to illustrate something. Now, here's a, here's a question. Here's a question. When it talks about a thief there, and we're going to look over at 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11 for a moment, where it talks about the coming of the Lord as a thief in the night, here's the question. What, is, what specifically is being referred to there when it says that he will come like a thief in the night. I used to think that it was the idea of silence, that he was coming silently. A thief would come silently, right? They're not going to proclaim their coming, but they're going to come in silently. But you know what? I don't think that's what it's speaking about at all. Because when we read about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says that there will be the sound of the trumpets and the shout of the archangel. That's not quiet. (laughs) That's a lot of noise. So what is it talking about then? It's talking about suddenness. Right? That's the very picture here. Suddenness. Not silence, but it's talking about If you knew what hour the thief would come, you would be waiting, but the Son of Man's coming at an hour you don't expect. Namely, he's going to come suddenly, and he could come when you're not expecting him to come. It's not referring to silence and him coming silently, but to him coming suddenly. And it's the same picture, I believe, over in 1 Thessalonians 5. You can turn there for a moment. First Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. And we'll even see the word sudden here used in our text. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. You see that there? It's not referring to silence there, but suddenness, and the suddenness of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. As labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, speaking to the church here, to the Lord's people, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. See how that connects with our text? 
We know that Christ is coming and that He's going to come suddenly. So we should be watching. We should be sober. Namely, there shouldn't shouldn't be anything that is distracting us from our duty unto the Lord and our watchfulness toward Him. Somebody that's drunk is not going to be a very good night watchman, are they? They're not going to be able to note when somebody arrives, whether it's their boss or whether it's a thief. They're not going to do that well. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Oh, we see so often the return of the Lord Jesus Christ connected with the concept of hope. Hope, hope, hope. Two practical exhortations that are so often connected with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. How ought we to live in light of the fact that He is coming back? Do we want to be found ready or do we we want to be caught in the very act of rebellion and sin against Him when He comes back to this world? And then the second is, have hope because He's coming and He will save. And He will bring vengeance upon our enemies. And He will glorify us with Him. And we will be able to worship Him in glory. And He will serve us. So diligence and righteousness and hope are so often connected to this. And it's so easy to get distracted from those practical exhortations connected to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. In light of the fact that He is coming, comfort one another. Don't be at each other's throats over eschatology and breaking fellowship with one another because of your eschatology. Comfort one another with the fact that Christ is going to return. I get so discouraged when I see people break fellowship and say they will not fellowship with somebody because of a difference over non-essential truths of the Lord's coming. They are violating one of the most practical exhortations regarding the Lord's return. And it ought not to be. It ought not to be. We'll talk a little more about that in a moment. So as we consider this, be ready, be watching, be good and faithful servants. Our Lord is going to return. He's going to serve and minister unto us when He comes. And we are to be found ready. Pastor Robert Murray McShane at times would ask people, quote, Do you believe that Jesus is coming today? If they replied in the negative, he would say, Then you had better be ready, for he's coming at an hour when you think not.
Let us ask ourselves, do we believe that Christ could come back at any time? Now let's ask the follow-up question, do we live as if Christ could come back at any time? And that will show if we truly believe that Christ could come back at any time. I was talking with a brother not too long ago, and actually it was in one of our men's Bible studies, and he mentioned one of our greatest problems is unbelief. And you know what? He's right. So often when we find ourselves not practically obeying the Lord, it's because we don't really believe something that he said. If we really believe that he's coming back and we really believe that ten seconds from now we would see his return or could see his return, how would that affect how we live every day? If we wake up every morning remembering that Christ could come back that day, how would we live that day? Would we be watching? Would we be vigilant? Would we be living righteously for His glory? Desiring to be pleasing unto Him? So that when He comes, He finds us in service to Him and loving God and loving others? <laughs> Do you long to be found ready when He comes? If not, why not? If that's not the way you live, ask yourself, why am I not living that way? Do you truly believe he could return at any time? Are you in love with this world? Maybe you don't want him to return. Have there been times in my life, in my life when I was a little more in love with the world and what was going on in the world and maybe thinking, Lord, if you're going to come back at any time, like just wait for a little while? <laughs> You know, we could probably all think at times like that. Maybe we thought everything was going really good. The morning of my wedding would have been one of those times. <laughs> Lord, if you're going to come back, just wait. Wait for another day or two. <laughs> the day is finally here. <laughs> but, but think about it for a moment. Our ultimate desire and allegiance should be to the Lord Jesus Christ, not to any person. And that was a glorious day. And I praise the Lord that He allowed me to see that day. I had a plastic toy sword. I was driving up to Dogwood Canyon up uh, toward Branson where the wedding was going to be held. My sister can testify of my joy in the car, I was waving the sword out the window and <laughs> hooping and hollering. And if if I if you go and examine the inside windshield of a little uh, gray Toyota Rav4, you're probably still going to see the the scratch and the plastic mark where I slammed it into the windshield on accident once. It was a glorious day. Can we anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus Christ with such joy? We should be watchful and waiting. 
He could come any time. I truly believe that. Do we anticipate that? Do we anticipate that? I want to consider here for just a moment. We have many exhortations by the Lord Jesus Christ worded very similar to the exhortation in our text that the Son of Man will come in an hour which we do not expect. And as a result of that, we're to be watchful. What's the main thrust of that exhortation? It is, you shouldn't be thinking to yourself, well, the Lord could not come, He absolutely cannot come now. But you better be watching at all times. Okay, so there's one one body of text. But then we have another body of text that we have to consider, and we have to consider how they fit together. And those, the other body of text are signs that the Lord Jesus Christ gives regarding His coming. And so we have to put those two together and see how they fit. How, how, does, how does it fit with the fact that Jesus says we, He's coming at an hour we don't expect Him, so be watching with, well, here's some things that you can see to have an idea of when His return will come. Now, ultimately, Jesus said, no one knows the hour, not even the Son of Man. He said, in my humanity, I don't even know the exact time that I'm coming back. And so I want us to consider for a moment some of the signs given in Matthew 24 in particular. And I'm going to mention as I go into examining these, that this is highly controversial waters. When we get into any of the details of eschatology and the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone who has done any in-depth study and studied different views on the subject will know without a question of a doubt that this is not a cut and dry issue, that this is a highly complex issue and that there are many many different texts that have to be reconciled with one another. And it doesn't matter what your camp of eschatology is, you will probably find people even within your own camp that disagree on the details of this. The fact of the matter, when I began to look at Matthew 24, I began to realize, you know what, regarding some of these signs given here and whether they're fulfilled or not fulfilled, I could come up with hundreds of different positions from very knowledgeable, reputable biblical scholars. Literally hundreds. I I am convinced of this. The study of eschatology and all of its finer details is, bar none, absolutely the most complex and difficult to sort out and understand study in all of the scriptures. I don't think there is another one that even... I don't know that there's another one that really even comes close in its complexity. And a testimony to that is the fact that over 2,000 years of the Christian church, there have been literally thousands of interpretations of various passages such as in Revelation. Literally thousands of different opinions regarding single passages. So, as by saying that, what I'm saying is when I present to you what I think here, 
I think that we should all approach texts like this with a good degree of humility. And I do so, and I submit something that I believe fits with the interpretation of the scriptures, but I realize how complex this is, and I'm very open to learn regarding this. But let's consider this, because this is a very important question to us. If there are signs which Jesus has given regarding his coming, namely things that have to take place before he comes, and if it is possible that those signs have not been fulfilled, then he can't come back yet. And we can't live thinking that he could come back today. Do you realize that? So we need to consider, is it possible that these signs have been fulfilled and that Christ could come back at any moment? Or are there things that we are waiting yet to see fulfilled before he can come back? Because he has said that certain things will happen before he comes. So in particular, I'm going to focus on Matthew 24 because we have many things listed here. And again, very humbly, I will propose an opinion on this. Matthew 24, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Did that happen? Yes, it did. In A.D. 70. What a fantastic prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly fulfilled. Speaks to the credibility of the Lord Jesus. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you notice they asked two specific questions. Tell us, when will these things be? When will the temple be destroyed and not one stone stand upon another? And then the second question is, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So he's giving some signs here, isn't he? We have to ask ourselves a question. Which question of the disciples is he answering here? Is he answering the question regarding his final return? Or is he answering the question regarding... When will the destruction of the temple and the end of the Jewish economy, the sacrifices and such like, take place because of the destruction of the temple and the place of sacrifice? So some of those signs, you know, earthquakes, wars, rumors of wars, pestilences, false prophets, 
the gospel being preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. He continues, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I want you to notice the, the specificity, how specific a region he's talking about here. He's talking about Judea. Where was the temple located? It was located in Judea. He says, let those people flee to the mountains. And you go back also in verse 9, it says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. He's speaking directly to those people there and saying, you are going to experience this. And we can ask ourselves a question, did they experience that? Did the people at that time face persecution? Were they delivered up to councils? Were they killed? The apostles themselves, all but probably John, was martyred for the faith. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babes, babies in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor shall ever be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. Powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds. From one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branches already become tender, put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. And then notice verse 34. Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Let's stop there for a minute and consider verse 34. There are many different interpretations of what verse 34 means. But we do have a time text being given by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been speaking to a certain people at a certain time, and he's been saying, you, 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 you. And now he says, Assuredly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What does that mean? Here's some possibilities that have been presented. One is that it means what it says, namely the literal meaning of the text. That Jesus was speaking to that generation at that time and that these things would be accomplished before the Lord Jesus would come back. 
and they would be accomplished even in the generation of those folks that lived at that time. If we were to take the ordinary meaning of language and the literal meaning of the text, that's what we would hold to at that point. But there are other views that have been presented, and again, these are all within the Christian camp, and I appreciate the complexity of this issue as we try and put all the text together. Others have proposed that we have particular signs here that are given which obviously have not happened, therefore Jesus could not have meant that it was that generation at that time because those things did not happen. And they'll say, for instance, you know, we have not seen the, the moon, you know, the sun darkened, the moon turned to blood, the stars falling from heaven, so obviously Jesus could not have meant the generation that was alive at that time. Um, those who are on the other side of the aisle will say, well, every time we look at the phrase, this generation in the scriptures, it always, with no exclusion, means the generation alive at the time when that was spoken or when that was written. And once again, that is the literal meaning of that. If we were just to read that plainly, that is how we would interpret it, following the literal rule of interpretation. But, as I said, some say, and it doesn't even matter what camp specifically there. there. There are people in the Reformed camp who hold to amillennialism, which say that these things have not all been fulfilled, therefore it is referring to a future generation and saying that the generation of people who see the beginning of all these signs will not pass away before all these things are completed. Then there are others who will look at that word generation and they will say that there are, there are a couple of instances where that word generation can mean type. So that could be referring to a certain type of people that would still be alive and have not passed away by the time Jesus comes back. And that type could be non-believers still exist, or believers are still in existence. And most will say that that type of people, namely believers, will still be alive at the time when these things are fulfilled. So there are many different opinions regarding this and how it all flows together. As I was examining it, there were some things that I looked at in this and I said, when I connect this with other passages in the scriptures which use similar terminology, those other passages seem to clearly be speaking about the final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So how would that fit with a literal understanding of this generation referring to the generation of people alive at that time? One of those would be, uh, look at verse 31. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, symbolizing the four different points of the compass, from one end of heaven to the other. I think that sounds like the final return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you put that together with the parable of the field, and Jesus explains it. There's this field of wheat, and tares are in the wheat, and then the master lets them grow up together and sends out his servants and they harvest. And Jesus explains the harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. The wheat are God's elect and the others are the non-elect. And that seems to clearly be referring to the final return of Christ. You know, when he comes and judgment takes place and, and uh, things are sorted out. 
Well, I'm going to propose an interpretation. I'm thankful to D.A. Carson in his commentary on Matthew, which I think, I think helps to explain this. And again, very humbly, I propose this. I am still convinced that because of the literal nature of this statement, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place, that there are things that Jesus has mentioned here which took place in that first century and were precursors to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And those things have all been fulfilled and were fulfilled in that generation of people during that time. But we have to ask the question. Jesus says, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. What these things is he speaking about? Is he speaking about absolutely everything he said from, chat, from verse 1 all the way up to this point? Or is he answering, first of all, the question the disciples asked, when will these things be, namely the destruction of the temple and all that, and then ask, what will be the sign of your coming? And here's what I would propose. Notice this in verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and put forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, we have to ask ourselves again, what things is he talking about? When you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. What is near at the doors? So we have two questions. What is these things? What are these things? And what is near? I would propose that the what is near is the return of Christ. Now here's the question. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven in great power and glory. He will send his angels with sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I still believe that that is speaking about the final return of Christ. As I tie it together with that parable of the harvest in the field. So that is not included in these things. And here is why, logically, I think it's not. Would it make any sense for Jesus to be saying, if verse 31 is, uh, 30 and 31 are referring to his final coming, would it make any sense for him to say, when you see all these things, know that the final coming is at the door? If it's referring to the time of his final coming, then obviously it's at the door. It's near, Right? So I think the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Jesus is now answering, what will the sign of your coming be and of the end of the age? The sign of the Son of Man appears. All the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I do believe that is speaking to his final return. 
And he's saying, when you see all these things, all those other events, I believe that those took place in the generation before 70 A.D. And that fits literally then with Jesus saying, this generation will not pass until all these things are accomplished. You see how that, that could fit? Uh, even if you disagree with me, <laughs> I think that it could fit logically and could flow logically together there. So, what does that mean? If those signs listed previously had been fulfilled before 70 A.D., and there are some other signs mentioned in Scripture, we don't have time to look at all of them, but I think that I could conclude that it is at least possible that those have been fulfilled up to this point. And we should at least try and maintain the openness to the possibility that those could have been fulfilled. The conclusion then that I draw is that the Lord Jesus Christ could come back at any time. And that someone who holds to that more literal interpretation of verse 34 there, namely, this generation will not pass away, that they can still believe that they can believe that the Lord Jesus could come at any time. And thus, I think that He could. And thus, I think we should be watching. And with things like the earthquakes and whatnot, it says these are the beginning of sorrows, for instance. We know that earthquakes and wars and rumors of wars, all these things have been happening for thousands of years. And they will continue until the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. But what's the, what's the main point of considering this? It is realizing that Christ could come back. And there, there are certain uh, systems of eschatology where people say Christ cannot come back yet. <laughs> if you're a post-millennialist, guess what? You have to say Christ can't come back yet because you believe that Christ is going to usher in a golden era on earth where righteousness predominates over the entire earth and then he will come back at the end of that time. Look around you. you know, does anybody in the right mind say that righteousness is, is reigning and predominant over the entire world? <laughs> no. So if you're a post-millennialist, you have to say, no, Christ cannot come back yet. I'm just mentioning the facts here. But Jesus said that he could come at an hour when nobody was expecting him. And we put that together with these signs. And I think whenever we see the signs and whenever we see statements about His coming, they're always geared toward God's people being expectant and watching and expecting Him to come. 
They're not given to discourage us into thinking that he could not come now. Okay? So, I want to mention a couple admonitions in closing. One, as I've mentioned, eschatology, in my opinion, is the most complex study in all of the Word of God. If, if you don't think that, then I would encourage you to study it. And not just looking at one particular camp, maybe a camp you've been taught your entire life, but looking at all the, the different views within the Christian camp. And you will realize how complex it is. It's not a cut and dry issue. There are some things cut and dry. And you look at the historic confessions of faith, you know what, they don't, they don't talk about signs of the times. They don't talk about antichrists or beasts. You know what they speak about? The things that Christians have agreed on throughout the ages? That Christ is coming back in a bodily return. They speak about the fact that there will be a judgment day. There will be heaven for those that are in Christ. There will be hell for those who are lost. There will be an eternal state. New heavens and earth where in righteousness dwell. That's what they, that's what they all say. Because those are the things Christians have agreed upon. Everything else, there has been numerous, numerous different opinions regarding those things. So the first admonition to, to all of us, no matter what camp we fall into, is that we need to maintain an openness that Christ could come at any time from now until even thousands of years from now in the future. People have predicted Christ's return in their lifetimes for thousands of years. And I'm just, I'm just saying the facts here. Every single one of them up to this point has always been wrong. That should lead us to some openness to consider that perhaps we could be incorrect in our considering of it now. And these admonitions extend to us regardless of what camp we're in. The second admonition to all of us is to keep our eschatology Christ-centered. It needs to be centered around Christ and His coming. There's some preachers out there, you turn on the radio, and if you want to hear about Israel, you go turn on their TV program. If you want to hear about Christ, don't even bother because you're not going to hear much about Him. Our eschatology needs to be Christ-centered. If we do believe that the events with Israel, and it's, I mean, this is glorious, I mean, fantastic. Israel has become a nation again. That's huge. That is absolutely huge. That is unheard of. For people to exist for that long and to become a nation of people once again. Could God be working in that way? And could these things be pointing to the fact that He's coming back soon? Yes. Yes, that could be. 
But anything that has to do with Israel is an end to the, or means to the end. It's not the end. Christ is the end. And His return is the end. And let's stay focused on Christ. And be watching. And not be distracted from Christ. Here's a final admonition. This one applies even most to those who don't focus on Israel so much and might be not in the dispensational camp. As I've examined my heart, I think one of my most needed admonitions is to keep watching. It's to watch for the return of Christ. It's not to think, well, you know, it could be now, it could be thousands of years from now, so why bother with it? Why think about it at all? If I take that attitude, am I being a faithful steward? You know, faithful servant, as the servants mentioned in the text? No. So no matter what camp we fall into, there are admonitions which apply to us. So I encourage all of us to consider very carefully. Consider the practical effects of what we believe. And I pray that what we will believe will spur us on toward zeal, for Christ in His glory, watchfulness for His return, diligence in being obedient unto Him, and thus bringing Him much glory. Bringing Him much glory. Let's pray together. I thank You for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, and that we can look toward that. We can anticipate it. And I pray, Father, that you will bless us as we consider these things. That you will work with us to help us to know the truth. And that you will help us to focus upon the practical exhortations regarding the return of Christ. May we be inspired. May we rejoice in the fact that He is coming back. May it be a delight unto us. And no matter what we believe about the various non-essential details of the Lord's return. May we be able to, with one voice and one heart, praise you that he is coming again. And bring you honor and glory. through the comfort that it brings to your people to know that our Savior will return. 
I pray this for His glory. Amen. You're dismissed.